705 on CJAD. Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, presented by Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller, back from a uh, March break. How are you, Josh? Excellent, Dan. Great. Busy time of year for you guys, I guess. No, no. All sitting and twiddling our thumbs. Everybody's filed their tax returns already. <laughs> sure Pauline, they Holly Marois has her money. We can all go home. <laughs> sure she does. Uh, joining us on the program tonight is Stephen Van Burkham of Van Burkham & Associates. Uh, Sebastian, I'm sorry that I say Stephen. Yeah, thanks, Sebastian Dan. Van Burkham. Uh, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. And we usually begin by just uh, chatting a bit about what uh, what Van Burkham and Associates does. So tell us about yourself. Okay, well, basically known as asset managers for institutional clients uh, in Canada, United States, and now in Asia, Hong Kong. And what type of investments are you, I guess, investing for people? I mean, yeah. actually, that's a good question because obviously, what I just said means I'm. I'm the be-all and end-all end to everybody, but that's not true. Just like at home, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that's when I really do it. Uh, I can do everything. Uh, but seriously, uh, I'm a specialist in so-called small-cap stock investing, which is basically smaller companies growing more rapidly, uh, and pension funds are looking to put some of their money, maybe 5 or 10% of their pension fund monies, into more exciting, rapidly growing companies. Obviously, they're more volatile, they're more risky, but at the same time, they outperform the market over the long term much better. And that's how pension funds can try to um, uh, make up their the assets that they need to pay the liabilities long term to the pensioners. Now, so you don't deal with uh, Mr. and Miss Consumer. You, you deal more with the financial institutions, the larger companies looking to invest their, as you say, pension-type assets. Right. So let's let's and because Dan, the, there's a part of the story that's really interesting because this business started literally from scratch. So let's go back to perhaps the beginning, Sebastian, and kind of tell us how you got into this. What background did you have before you said, you know what, let's take that leap and start something on my own? Well, you're taking me way back. <laughs> um, I guess we're em we're immigrants. Uh, we came to Canada with nothing in in our pockets, really. Um, my mother had already had five kids. I was the eldest. Uh, we started from scratch. And um, I guess early on, I realized that if I wanted to uh, have stuff, um, I had to go and get it. And I guess that's when my entrepreneurial, f uh, the essence of my entrepreneurship sort of began to show itself. So I did everything uh, with a lot of, you know, a lot of people do today. I mean, you know, having paper roots, uh, uh, cutting grass, shoveling snow, uh, working in a local hardware store. I mean, all kinds of things, any way to sort of make a buck because, you know, if I wanted to go to that dance and I, I wanted to look good for that potential girlfriend that I was going after, well, I had to go out and buy the shirt myself. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> so Always got to look good. <laughs> it's all about look. And when did you get... So now let's come to the investment side of, right. of of the business and your expertise. What pushed you into that side, and, and when did you begin Van Berkham & Associates? Well, uh, let's go back uh, just prior to that because I think it's important. Um, uh, I always was uh, highly curious. I was easily bored. Um, so I was looking for something exciting to do in my life. Uh, so I ended up going to um, John Molson School of Business at Concordia University. I got a degree in, in, in commerce. And um, then I was looking for what I really wanted to do in life, given this curiosity factor I had. So uh, I was lucky enough to stumble across the pension fund manager, the Bell Canada Pension Fund in those days. And we had a great connection. 
and he hired me as an analyst. And that's sort of where my exposure to uh, investing uh, really began. And I realized it was so exciting because every single day it was changing. There was new challenges. So from that, I realized this was my calling. It's interesting because many entrepreneurs, Josh, that we that we profile, you know, have been employees, and then you know find that perhaps their employers are too constrained or not not appealing to their creative side, and then they go off on their own. It was that the case, uh, Sebastian? Did you feel that you weren't uh, that you were being held back by your employer? Uh, actually, no. Um, I thought that uh, working at the Bell Canada Pension Fund was a great learning ground. It was like going t uh, to get your your PhD while working, and. But you know, after seven years being there, I, I realized it's time to now capitalize on this knowledge and make some money for myself. So I moved on, uh, became a founding uh, partner of Montresco Associates in Montreal, and I did that for seven years. And I realized that, again, I was restricted in, the, in, in, in to answer your question. In this case, I felt that uh, it was time to move on and do exactly what I really love to do because my love affair with Bell, with uh, small cap stocks actually began at Bell Canada. But I accumulated a lot of knowledge at Bell and then at Montrusco in terms of marketing, administration, being a member of the board, and basically acquiring all the tools that you need to be able to start a business from scratch. Um, so I d I decided to sell my shares in Montrusco and move on. But you were an owner of Montrusco, so yes. you wanted to. You really wanted to start something from scratch. Did you get bored again? Well, actually, I was a significant shareholder of Montrusco. They bought me out. I had the capital, basically, to start my business, and then the excitement of being completely in charge of your own destiny uh, began. But it also had tremendous frustrations. Now. You're out, you're, you're, you have this amount of capital, you're looking to start your new business. What's the first thing that you do? What's the first thing you did? You said, I got to start my own. What was number one on the list that you, you had to take care of? Number one, don't spend too much money. And number two, <laughs> get a first client as fast as possible. And okay, so I get the not spending too much money and you have to work sometimes out of premises that are, that are not necessarily uh, A1 or not your first choice. What about that first client? I got to imagine in a business, in a people business, in a trust business, when you're looking after their money, it's not so easy to start pick up your first client. Can you maybe explain that experience and what you learned from it? That was the, the most challenging part of starting my business. You don't have a business if you don't have a client who's going to pay the bills. So I had established a lot of contacts across the country. And in Montreal, I had, well, actually, I had non-compete costs with uh, Montrusco because it paid me at my shares. But the thing is, don't solicit and don't compete against our existing clients. So, fine. But I had developed a great contact uh, of other potential clients in Montreal that were not uh, Montrusco's clients. And luckily, one of those was McGill University. So, um, about, a, about uh, nine months after I started my company, um, I, I approached uh, Ian McKinnon in, in those days who was there uh, uh, responsible for the pension fund. I mentioned to him what I was doing. He, he knew me anyway from my Montrusco days because I had been trying to cater to them. And he said, you know, Sebastian, I think it's time. Why don't you come in and make a presentation to the investment committee? And that's when the beautiful opportunity of trying to convince somebody to become your client began. Was it a long time into your venture that this took place? Well, it was about, um, I think, eight or nine or ten months into it. 
So I had done a lot of traveling across the country, meeting all of my contacts, trying to find out who would come into play as soon as possible. And luckily, uh, McGill called, and uh, they gave me the opportunity to make a presentation to the investment committee. When you were starting this business, did you have a plan in mind? Did you go out and say, okay, hopefully as things are going to start right away, I, you know, I'll be financially okay, although you had a bit of capital to start. Did you have that written plan on paper as to what might happen at what point or what stage of this new business? No, I had a very, very clear focus. I had such a love for small cap stocks. It was the inefficient part of the market. I knew from everything I had done the uh, 20 years prior to starting my company that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So it, it was, I didn't have to sit down and pencil down a, a game plan. I just knew that this focus is what I wanted to do. I just needed a pension fund client to start it. And if I performed, I would then be successful in getting other clients. And focus is certainly something that many entrepreneurs need uh, and have, and certainly the successful ones know that they shouldn't stray. And when we come back, we'll hear a little bit more about after that first client, now how does the business take off from there? Sebastian Van Burkham of Van Burkham & Associates, our guest on Today's Entrepreneur. Coming at the 720 on Today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller, with our guest Sebastian Van Burkham of Van Burkham & Associates. And Josh, a very interesting niche market that, uh, that Sebastian feels in, that, uh, in the investment uh, community. He looks for the smaller companies, the riskier companies, and tries to make them a bit less risky and, and sells those. Uh, those to, to institutions. And I and we just before we left, we were talking about Sebastian's first client, which was McGill University, and his ability to kind of sell them or to educate them that it's a specialized market. So I, I guess we'll turn to Sebastian and say, why this market and how do you sell yourself? How do you ensure that your services aren't the same as the guy next door? Right. Well, there aren't too many guys next door who focus only on small caps, so that's that's one beautiful part of what I'm doing is that there are in Canada maybe, you know, uh, three dozen people or institutions who offer small cap services, but in terms of a company that only does small cap, there's hardly anybody except us. So it's a nice uh, situation. But to go back to your question on, you know, how do you con convince uh, an institution like McGill that this is a nice niche market? Obviously, I showed them historical results of small cap investing in the United States from 1926 to date. In the Canadian market, I have statistics of how small cap stocks perform relative to the market from 19, I think 1956 to, to today. And even though the index is more volatile, there is a significant increase in performance uh, just on an index basis versus the market. Like uh, on average, over uh, 75 years, uh, small cap will do on a passive basis. If you were to buy a small cap index, you do 2% better than the TSX. But However, you, still, you still have to be a stock picker, right? You can't just go out and buy the index because in the small cap, there are some riskier companies versus some less risky companies if you peel back some right. of the layers. So if you're a stock picker and you have a very focused discipline in terms of the kind of companies that I think will perform much better than the index, then we can add actually you know, three to 400 basis points over that 2%, which means we can outperform the market by five or 6% compound over 20 years. Is it the same, since you started in the early 90s, 
do you have you created or do you follow a formula on how you select your products yes your stocks has that changed over the last 20 years? It has not changed at all. It's just been refined. And with uh, modern technology, we're able to uh, dig deeper and build more complex models to ensure that the basic principles that, have, that I started with 40 years ago and when I started my company 20 years ago, we still followed the same principles. And I could, uh, there are only about half a dozen really very important uh, disciplines that you need to know uh, to be successful in this, in what I'm doing, and perhaps uh, perhaps Sebastian will share some of those disciplines. But also interesting to hear how technology, uh, you know, people are online every day. Technology and people looking up stocks and information for the for the layman is is one thing, but for the professional to sift through everything, there must be tons of information available today, more than there certainly was 20 years ago, and certainly more accessible. When we come back from the break, I think we'll explore those those areas. Sebastian Van Burkham of Van Burkham Associates, our guest on Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800 at 723. Today's Entrepreneur with our guest Sebastian, Sebastian Van Burkham of Van Burkham & Associates, and Josh, we're talking about uh, Sebastian's business, a, uh, an investment firm which specializes in the smaller companies, the riskier companies that the big institutions tend to overlook. And just before we left, we were talking about Sebastian's strategies, his disciplines, what has made him a successful entrepreneur that I'm sure could apply across the board. So Sebastian, maybe you can share with us some of those strategies that you've implored. Yeah, thanks. Um, we're looking for high quality in the small cap space, which tends to be you know, a combination of highly risky companies that don't make money and high-quality companies that do make money. So we sort of separate those two groups out. Companies that don't make money, we don't have any interest in. So that uh, basically eliminates a substantial part of a universe. In Canada, we're talking about 750 companies listed on the stock exchange that would have a market cap within the range that we look at. Um, so we eliminate half of them, so we're down to 350. Um, and of the 350, you know, we might, uh, of the really high quality companies, there may be 200 that really are worth looking at in terms of the following criteria. Um, uh, companies that have a stable business model in terms of being able to generate consistent high return on capital, balance sheets that do not have too much debt, companies that generate free cash flow on a, on a regular basis, and managements that are outstanding, but also have a significant invested stake in their own companies. We were also talking about technology, and th those are very important features and characteristics to follow. Is that information readily available today? And how do you compare that to 20 years ago when you first started? <laughs> that is some question. Uh, I remember when I was, uh, well, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, we used to get annual reports and quarterly reports delivered to us by mail, by snail mail, and we had to basically wait for the results. Uh, there was no conference calls. There's no fair disclosure uh, rules. It was all very much a, um, a um, an old boys club type of network, um, and access to information was not nearly as advanced as it is today. Today, everything is available through all kinds of database, databases. We can screen f companies for criteria um, and look all over the world and find companies that basically meet the kind of criteria that I just outlined in a flash. What we have to do, though, is it may be nice to be able to, uh, to um, 
uh, find these companies using uh, computer technologies uh, from these databases that are readily available, the challenge then is, okay, so you've got an interesting company on paper. Is it really that good? And that's when you have to do your research. You then have to uh, talk with uh, their clients, their competitors, their suppliers. You've got to meet management. You've got to, pe- you've got to really understand the people behind the company. And it's not just yourself anymore. It becomes the team around you yeah. at VBA and training them and making sure they follow that, call it mantra, if you will. Yeah. Is it is it easy to train your people? It's not easy. Number one, you have to find outstanding young people that are ext- uh, are extremely well educated in terms of, you know, it could be accounting, uh, a master's degree in uh, an MBA, a CFA, um, uh, usually double degree uh, people now coming out of university who ha- who who have also exhibited in a, a certain interest or passion in in investing in the stock market when they were young. And I think that, you know, and there's certainly a learned factor, but there's a training factor and there's a persistence factor and, uh, and a knowledge factor and to be able to understand everything factor. So when we come back, we'll kind of explore a little bit more about human resource. And also, Van Berkham and Associates goes to Hong Kong. We'll hear about that as well. <laughs> Sebastian Van Berkham of Van Berkham and Associates, our guest this evening on Today's Entrepreneur. Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800, presented by Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you, and our guest, Sebastian Van Burkham of Van Burkham and Associates, an uh, investment firm that specializes in companies that, do, that are a bit more under the radar, that require a bit more research. And I think uh, uh, that's where your team, Sebastian, comes in. Uh, you have, uh, I would assume, it would be a highly specialized, highly trained team, uh, people who are uh, able to to pick up uh, on growing companies that the banks uh, perhaps don't have the expertise to 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 look into. Tell us about your team and how you find these people and and what kind of uh, of qualities are do you look for in employees? Yeah, my approach has been to have teams of four uh, for each country. It may not seem like a lot, but it is. And obviously, every team has to have a leader. I used to be the leader for the Canadian Equity team. Now I've I've uh, basically transitioned out, and uh, a guy by the name of Benoit Zura, who was with uh, Natcan before he joined uh, me uh, for about 13 years now, uh, he proved to me that he had all the ingredients to basically take over the leadership. So leadership of a team is is critical. Then the people, the working with the leader is the second most important uh, criteria. And the kind of people looking for there is like very well-educated people who can not only analyze, because I think you can find an an their analysts are almost a dime a dozen. What's important is to find an outstanding analyst who can not only analyze, but who can make you money. And that's where, you know, the the subjective or the... the um, uh, uh, feeling them out, feeling them... People out it's, involved in um, these companies. It's the artistic side of the what gut. we do. Uh, they call it the gut or the nose. That part of the equation is extremely important because at the end of the day, somebody has to be able to make a decision that this stock is going to go up and he's got to basically sell the team that for this and this and this and this and this reason, we've got to buy the stock. You, made a, you said an interesting word before, Sebastian, called transition. Uh, as as many entrepreneurs are in their business looking to tomorrow, because uh, not all of them focus on today, 
Do you have a succession plan? I have a very... What is, what, what is Van Berkham & Associates beyond Sebastian von Van Berkham? I hope that Van Berkham & Associates will be around for the next 25 years. And the way I'm orchestrating that is I'm every year selling a small amount of shares to my up-and-coming partners so that they are going to be able to take charge of these three entities that I've created. And it's only by making these people shareholders that they become part of VBA. And even though I've decided that at 80 I'm going to retire, so I've got a few years ahead of me. Uh, but at the same time, everybody knows the game plan. Um, it's engraved in our shareholders agreement. It's clearly set out so everybody knows what's going to happen in the future. When you're selecting your next partner, the one that doesn't yet have shares, are the criteria clear to them? We make it clear at the beginning. And they know what is possible. They have to prove it to me first that they are eligible to receive shares. And usually I wait a year or so before I start giving... Uh, the upcoming analyst uh, uh, or the rising star, you know, a 1% ownership position in the firm. Why, why do you not cling to your shares? Why do you want to sell them? What's in it for you? I think share, money and share ownership is one thing. To create a legacy and to create a company that will continue for as long as the eye can see, to me, is more important than money. And your partners do you have a real structure with them is this something you meet you try and be on the same page how do you work with your partners you know that's another great question i think communication between all of the members of your team is essential to success you have to create a culture people have to think the same way they have to get to, together the, they have to be able to work well, well together you have to be able to delegate authority people have to know that the the buck stops at their desk because there's nobody else behind them that's going to do it they have to feel part of a team and to create that atmosphere and that culture i think is important to success do you challenge each other we challenge uh, excessively and tremendously so Air do you disagree with each other we do, <laughs> and do we challenge, but we challenge each other respectfully. It's always done with respect, uh, because we know that in the kind of business we are in, um, forty percent of our of our decisions, unfortunately, are are bad decisions. How do you break a deadlock? Does the does the man whose uh, whose name is on the the title of the business get the final word? No, I don't no. believe in that. I think that the team, be it Canadian team, U.S. team, or the Asian team they all together have to embrace the new idea. And if there is, there must be a reason why there is not consensus. So if you can't find a set consensus, that means there's a piece of information missing. So let's research more and let's bring it back to the table at a later date. Now let's talk about, you know, you keep mentioning these different teams, Canadian team, American team, or U.S. team, Asian team. These are truly different markets. Maybe you can give us a little insight or your thoughts on how and when and why you expanded to these other markets? Asia uh, turned out to be um, something I had not expected. However, I had a, a Chinese fellow, Lawrence Lai, who was wor had working with me for eight years uh, on the U.S. team, the Canadian team, and his family was gradually moving back to Hong Kong. One day, two, year, two years ago, he comes to me, he says, Sebastian, I also want to move back to Hong Kong. So the light bulb went on. 
everybody knows that Asia for the next 10, 20 years is going to be the growth engine on the planet. As it already has been for right. many years already. Right. So it was a no-brainer. Here's a guy who, uh, who's worked with us. I trust him. He understands our investment philosophy, our process, our disciplines, and the guy's got it. So I said... And I, he can make decisions, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I incorporated Van Berkham Golden Dragon, and I sold him 10% of the company as sweat equity because I want the guy to be the leader. He's the managing partner, and I've hired two Chinese analysts uh, since. So now we have a team of four because I'm the president and CEO of that, uh, that operation as well as uh, – so I work with the other three guys. And I got a client, and uh, the client who funded us for our U.S. Uh, operation in 2000 came back to the table and gave us $50 million last year. Uh, so it's off and running. Do you feel like your focus is going to slowly shift from North America over to Asia in the coming years? No, because there's demand in Canada for small cap. There's a demand in U.S. for small cap. There's demand in, in Canada for also U.S. and Canadian. And there's demand in Canada for Asia. So uh, the initial thrust will be offering the Asian product to North American pension funds. And I have a director in Hong Kong that is a private equity guy. And he tells me that there's a tremendous amount of wealth coming out of China through Hong Kong that's looking for a home and that eventually be further business opportunities for us. And just before we get to the to the news break, just quickly, barriers like to start up in Hong Kong, was it difficult? What was the biggest barrier to get things going there? You know, the regular the the legal and regulatory environment is much more severe than it is in North America. That was the biggest surprise. Luckily I had the guy, I had the clients um, but to to be registered with, with the Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong was a seven-month process. To be incorporated was easy, but that was the most difficult part. So much to know, so little time. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> Perhaps another time. And uh, Sebastian Van Burkham will stay with us, and uh, we'll have his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur before the hour is up. Uh, but first, after the break, we'll talk to Ernie Furt, tax partner at Furlalando, with some uh, tips on how to make your accountant's life a lot easier in the coming weeks. 7.49 on today's entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and Josh Miller of Furlalando with you. Our guests, uh, Sebastian Van Burkham of Van Burkham & Associates, will have his one piece of advice uh, for today's entrepreneur coming up. But first, Ernie Furt, tax partner at Furlalando, talking about tax time, of course, and how to make uh, your accountant's life a lot easier. I usually give mine a bunch of pay stubs and some receipts in a, in a little baggie, and I hand it off to him, and I say, good luck. Well, then this is for you, Dan. <laughs> That's not the way you're supposed That's to do it, you one saying? of the don'ts that okay. I have here. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do to, to, to make your accountant's life easier and also to make your bill a little bit less expensive at the end of the day. Uh, some of the things that you could do is you could use your computer knowledge, make an Excel spreadsheet of all the donations you made. Uh, you could obtain a list of your prescriptions from your pharmacy, because they do that. They'll give you an annual list. You'll walk in. Most people have a tendency of using the same pharmacy for the entire family, and they'll make you a list by family member. It's a simple thing. doesn't cost you anything, and every pharmacy will do it. And as a matter of fact, if you happen to miss a slip or lose a slip, you know that this, should, this list should be complete. Exactly. Also, some people may have group insurance. If you have group insurance, you can go to the website of the group insurance company and you could print all your claims. Now, most people are covered for, for group insurance for health and dental, but, but may not be covered with respect to vision care. So don't forget those receipts from, for contact lenses or purchases of glasses or anything of that nature. 
one of the things that I say is, please don't give your receipts to the accountant in a paper bag because we charge by the pound. And you know, <laughs> the bigger the bag, the more we charge. And, you know, I found strange stuff in these bags, uh, unopened bills. I found unopened checks in bags. Hmm. So another thing is be organized. Take the receipts out of the envelopes. Try to give the receipts in a logical order. Separate them by T3s, T4s, T5s, donation. And and also, when you do that, when you're separating them by type, also separate them by taxpayer. Because if you're a house of five people, I don't want to see everybody's T4s and T5s all together. I want to see them by by type, but by person. Some people invest in uh, in small cap companies. Some people invest in large cap companies. And they make sales. So we need your cost and purchase information. Now, some of the brokers will provide that for you. Others, you're going to have to call and you're going to get it. Uh, but if they can't give it to you, at least retain your cost information. Generally, we'll have, uh, we'll have the sale information, but the cost information is essential in order to determine your capital gains and losses, especially if they're done in U.S. dollars. Another thing is if you're, if you're an American and you have to file a U.S. return, you could also get your broker to provide a statement of capital gains and losses in U.S. dollars because the currency has fluctuated drastically over the course of time. You know, uh, and, and you could have certain purchases that were done at the rate of 1.45 while today they're at a rate of one. So it's a very important thing that you translate them at a proper time. There's so much, there's so much information that could potentially go on to an individual's tax return. Where can that person find that list of information? I mean, if they don't know what to give you, oftentimes they'll just kind of throw everything in a bag and say, here, take it, you sift through it. So maybe is maybe there's a place that they can get some guidance on what to include. What I would suggest generally is they should look at anything that the accountant gives them. Some accountants give organizers. Some accountants, like us, we just give a list of information in a pamphlet. And another great source of information is your last year's tax return. People are extremely consistent. Mm. They give the same donations to the same places. They have the same medical type of receipts generally every year. They have the same income. They don't switch banks. They don't switch stockbrokers. Chances are everything there will be the same. So you'll be able to pull out the, your last year's return, go through everything one step at a time, and, and and don't give your accountant stuff on a piecemeal basis. Don't say, you know, call them up and say, I have a receipt for you. I have a pile of receipts for you, a complete pile of receipts. That's the best thing to do. All right, more tax tips with Ernie, how to make your accountant's life a lot easier after the break. Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800 at 7.54. Remaining moments of Today's Entrepreneur with our guest, Sebastian, Sebastian Van Burkham of Van Burkham & Associates. His a piece of advice for Today's Entrepreneur coming up in a moment. But first, Ernie Furt, tax partner at Philolanda, with more tips to keep your accountant's life a lot simpler. A lot simpler, Ernie. We try to keep things as simple as possible. There's, there's always things to do and organization is the key to to simplicity at the end of the day if you're organized and you provide a summary of what you did then your accountant is a happy person you know there's certain things that people have a terrible tendency of forgetting child care receipts fitness tax credits bus passes you know if they're monthly bus passes the cultural credit for children their rrsp slips these are things that you know that are there but people forget them you know, there's a solidarity credit 
you know, the people say, do we have to file a tax return for, for our child who is going to school? Yeah, there's a tuition credit that's, that, that could be used by that child or potentially transferred to the parent, especially if that child is going to school in the States. Those tuitions are quite expensive and uh, can be transferred to a parent. Would it be useful and worthwhile to just pick up a tax return, a full tax return or a guide and just read through it just to know what you can submit? What Generally, when I give tax courses to, to tax preparers, I ask them and tell them that they should read the guide cover to cover, just a general tax guide. Is it something that the layman should do? If they really have some time on their hands, then yes, I would suggest that they do it. But at least look at the changes in the front of the guide to see if there's anything new that it could could affect you and could affect your tax position. If you don't really understand it, give us a call and we'll tell you what to do with it. Excellent. Thank you very much, Ernie. And as we come up to the last moment of the show, we'll turn to Sebastian and say, Sebastian Van Berkham, what one piece of advice would you give to today's entrepreneur? I think to be successful as an entrepreneur, it's all about focus and discipline. Just as simple as that. It sounds simple, hard to do, mm -hmm. because people can easily get sidetracked. It's all about staying the course no matter what. Having that discipline to stay on course is the most important single ingredient to long-term success. Did you always have it, or do, was it learned? I'm a stubborn Dutchman. <laughs> it must be ingrained. <laughs> I must have got it from my grandfather. <laughs> and, I th and I think that, that actually, you know, the fact that, it, that it's ingrained, I think, is an important aspect. As an entrepreneur, there's just characteristics of entrepreneurs that just somehow emanate or are part of each individual. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and certainly not everyone, although, has the discipline, I find. Some of them are a little more creative and have great ideas, but not always the discipline to carry them through. Uh, so entrepreneurs that are successful absolutely have that discipline, that focus to make sure that what's in their mind, creative or, or more strategic, make that happen. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Ernie Furt, for your tax advice. And thank, thank you. you, Sebastian Van Berkham of Van Berkham Associates, for joining us this evening on Today's Entrepreneur. Don't forget, you can reach Fuller Landau during business hours at 514-875-2865 or visit www.fmmontreal.com back next Monday night at 7 p.m. on News Talk Radio, CJAD 800.